Thank you all for worshiping together. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, I'd love for you to open up with me to Genesis 37 as we conclude uh, our series Origin Stories with one last look at the book of Genesis. Uh, really enjoyed uh, this uh, really kind of focused in study of the first book of the Bible. Oh, I believe God has, uh, I don't know if it's saved the best for last, but one of my favorite stories is going to be our focus up today. We'll get to the text in just a minute, but I want to set the stage for us today and introduce, introduce the, really what's at the heart of the story up front so we can kind of be thinking about it and it can be kicking around in the back of your mind so that when we get to the, the story that I think we're probably all familiar with, you kind of see uh, the, 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 what's coming on the horizon. So I want to talk to you all about something that I think is one of the most underrated human qualities that everybody has. That there is a nature, there is a virtue, there is, there is something within all of us. There's a thing in all of us that I think is universal uh, within every person, whether you realize it or not, whether you harness it the same way or as it was meant to be harnessed or not. There is something in all of us uh, that shows up differently in all of our lives and at different points in our lives. Uh, but the funny thing about this quality, this virtue, um, is that sometimes it shows up in an advantageous way the way it was meant to, but other times it shows up in a detrimental way. It wasn't supposed to be this way. It wasn't supposed to work this way, but as we've learned in this series, there was a lot of things that didn't work out the way they were supposed to, yet thankfully God had a way of working it all back in the right direction. But there's a thing that all of us have, there's a virtue that all of us have that sometimes it shows up the way it's supposed to, but other times it shows up in a way that is kind of mutated from what it was supposed to be detrimental to our overall perspective on life. that There aren't many qualities or natures or virtues like this that can be both positive and, and, and negative, but, but that is definitely the case for this one. Uh, so without further suspense, what I'm talking about is hope. Now hope is something that all of us have, all of us know something about, all of us feel it at times, but, but I, I, I'm sure your response is, well hope is only positive. Uh, hope is, is a positive thing. There's no way uh, that, that hope could ever be a detrimental thing. And I'm not trying to convince anybody that hope is a bad thing. But the reason I want to show you that hope can show up in our lives in both positive and negative ways is to make sure that everybody agrees with me that the seeds of this, this, this that hope is a universal, constant quality, a frame of mind that every one of us have. And the reason I, I want to address it, the, the kind of hope that, that is often to our detriment is to convince that person, because I know there's somebody here today, many of you maybe would, would argue this, some of you would say, I'm not a very hopeful person. Some of you would say, I have a hard time holding on to hope when things get tough. And I I'm, I'm, imagine there's at least one of you today, uh, maybe few of you, that would argue uh, that hope isn't a universal quality because you're a negative person. You're a pessimistic person. Uh, you don't want to be a negative person necessarily, but it's just the way your mind works. It's the way you were wired. You were born or you were, have been that way for a long time. You, you wish you weren't. You would love to not be, but the way your brain works and the way that you have developed and come to be in this world, um, you just have a hard time getting your hopes up. So when I say to you that you have this in you, you would say, well, well Justin, you know, I, I, I don't. I'd love to be a hopeful person, but, but, but I'm, I'm just not. But I can't object hard enough to anybody that says that. And, and if you would say that about yourself, I want to specifically talk to you 
for a few minutes. And I think if, if you aren't in this category, if you're an overall positive person, then I think you should listen because I think this will teach you something about yourself that I think is going to help all of us understand something that we all have in our hearts, but it often goes one of two ways. So there are two kind of hopes. There's earnest hope, which I think is what we all kind of understand hope to be. But then there's this other kind, and it's stubborn hope. Now, earnest hope is, again, what we, what we generally think of when we think of hope. Uh, it's that optimism. Um, it's that part of us that's optimistic. It's that part of us that's defiant against the odds. It's that part of us that believes in the impossible, willing to strike against the hardest of rocks many times that you have to because you believe that eventually things are going to break your way. That earnest hope is that thing in us that, that chooses to believe, that doesn't grow weary in doing well even when things get tough, that, that endures and is persistent and is gritty and determined. But then there's stubborn hope. This is the kind of hope that often makes us return to a well that's run dry against our own best interest. We keep digging and digging and digging and all the signs have told us, hey, maybe you should dig somewhere else, but we just won't take no for an answer. And maybe you know something about this kind of hope. And you wouldn't call it hope. You would just call it stubbornness. But it's that thing in you that continues to do something even though you know it isn't going to work out. And, and again, in, and in essence, that's what hope is. Hope says, I'm going to keep doing it. Right? Persistently, optimistically, but also in a stubborn, negative way. There's a part of you that often just can't quit, even when everyone around you is telling you it's okay to. Even when everybody around you is saying, for your own best interest in health, you need to. There's a part of you that won't ask for help even when it's been offered. Maybe you're married to that person. Maybe you are that person. There's a part of you that, that keeps repeating the same thing again and again and again, even when it's obvious you're just going to get hurt again, physically or emotionally. My, my point is that even if you say you're not a very hopeful person, you're still channeling the essence of what hope is, just in a stubborn, hard-headed way. So my statement to you, if you say I'm not hopeful, I don't ha I'm not very positive, I'm very negative, I just kind of see the world through a negative lens. If you say that's who you are and you just don't see it changing, my, my, my statement to you is that you know what hope is. The bones of it are there. The seeds of it are there. You just channel it in all the wrong ways. You're just optimizing something that God put in you in all the wrong ways in a way that's actually against you. It is possible for even the most negative, hard-on-themselves, stubborn person, it is possible for you to learn the power of hope. You just haven't wrapped your arms around it in the way that can benefit you. There, there are people that say, I'm just negative by nature. I'm just a downcast person. I just can't help it. And, and that's what your mind wants you to believe. That's what the enemy wants you to believe. And many of you have been convinced, haven't you? You have a tremendous, you have a tremendous amount of hope. You just stubbornly refuse to take any advice, right? That, that's, that's, a, that's a kind of hope. Now, some of us are so beat down and so hard, hardened by our circumstances that they've shaped us in a way that maybe our genetics and environments have raised us uh, in, in such a way that we believe the lie that there's no hope for us. We believed it, and we bought stock in it, and we're going to sell it for generations as long as we, we can. But here's my, my whole grand point in this. It takes a lot of hope to have no hope at all. It takes a whole lot of hope to say, I have no hope. Because you know what people tell me when they say they have no hope? 
They give me a lot of reasons as to why they have no hope. They tell me how confident they are in all of the wrong sources to defend their hopelessness. See where I'm going with this? That there are some of you that you will go, you will talk for minutes on end about why you don't have hope. Why there is nothing optimistic about your future. Why you should be pessimistic. Why you should be negative. You'll tell me for 20 minutes or more. And I'm thinking, you really have a lot of faith in that story, don't you? Right? You're really convinced. Because you put your hope in the wrong sources. And, and, and that tells me you have zero confidence. And I'm not beating up on you or picking on you. I'm just saying you have zero confidence in the one good source because you put all your confidence in the wrong sources. But don't you see, by believing that, you're plan by believing that you're planting your feet in the ground saying, I've been this way, I always will be this way, and I'm always, there's no chance of me changing. Isn't that in and of itself a kind of hope? Isn't that in and of itself that you're putting your hope in how things have always been done and you're keeping the economy moving and booming in that business that goes on in your head? Maybe you respond and say, Justin, is the mind that powerful? Absolutely it is. Other people are a lot smarter than me that can tell you, tell you how powerful it is. But what if you could channel that stubbornness? What if you could figure out, and what if you discovered that at the root of that stubbornness, that pessimism, that negativity, that there are the seeds of a hope that can raise you up out of that? The very fact that you believe you can't change, that things can improve, tells me and should tell you that you can. If you just shift your hope from where you've had it to where it should be. Because the next door neighbor to that stubbornness it is an earnest, resilient kind of hope. God has planted this hope in each and every one of our hearts. The wisest man that ever lived, Ecclesiastes, is his memoir. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11, that God has made everything beautiful in his time. So we read that statement, God has made everything beautiful and we want it always to be beautiful right now this instant. But Solomon says, hey, it's going to take some time. Sometime. And, and God tells us, or Solomon tells us that God has put eternity into everybody's heart. That means that God has put this concept that things will work out. That there is a beginning and an end. And across this journey of life, things will work out. That God has put the seed in your heart to believe, to have confidence, to have faith, and to have hope. So that you can see when it's all said and done that God was working from beginning to the end. Even if our little minds can't figure it out in the moment. That's why it takes hope. Because hope is choosing to believe that God is going to work it out. Hope is a byproduct of being created in God's image. Who made us knowing that we would rebel against him. And that he loves us anyway. In all of us, he embedded in our souls. His fingerprints all over our souls is this gift of hope. That wants to always believe that God has a plan. That God is in control. And we learned last week that God clearly can be trusted. He allowed things to fall apart in the very beginning. To prove that he is trustworthy. To show us that he is a loving God in that he kept the story going after we broke everything. 
Yet part of the fallout of sin entering creation, the result of the fall, is that sin infected our nature. And the way sin alters us and corrupts the things that God put in us, mutates the things that God put in us, it's the reason why sometimes our capacity for love turns into a craving for lust. It's the reason why that our aspirations for progress often corrupt into a, a, an obsession for success. It's the reason why the joy we find in God's gifts often twist into greed over those gifts and jealousy over the gifts that others have that we don't. Do, do you see that the way the fall affected creation was that things that God put in our hearts have been twisted and corrupted. That God gave you the capacity to love and rejoice Yet, sin has twisted those things into things like lust and greed and jealousy. On that same scale, the earnest hope that God put in all of our hearts has become this stubborn kind of hope that resists and doubts that God can do what he says he can do. That we're channeling all that capacity to believe, to believe all the wrong things. And our minds lock in on this as quickly as we give it the bait. This doesn't just happen because of our own bent, fallen bent, but because of the world around us is so immersed in sin. And it often gives us a much worse version of life than we imagined and definitely far below what God intended. So today, we're going to look at Genesis one last time as we conclude this origin story series to get a glimpse of the hope that God has put in every heart. And, and we're going to see it in its purest form. We'll look at an individual's heart who chose to not allow his hope to be corrupted or taken from him and refused to lose connection with the incredible promise from God. And, and as the story of Genesis is wrapping up, God is going to give Israel one more why behind some of the great mysteries of creation. We've already seen him answer some questions that the Jews must have had. Why did God create the world? Why did he make us? Why didn't he start over when we all failed so early on? So we learned God made the world because he was full of love and he wanted a world that he could love and pour his self out for. We also learned that he made us to bring glory to him. He made us to be responsible and to, to be blessed from God, to serve God with those blessings. But that's not what Adam and Eve did. Yet God didn't hit reset when the fall happened. He didn't just say, heck with this, I'll start over. Because of his love, and he saw that fall as an opportunity to make his love known even more. It serves as a platform and a backdrop for the world to always be mindful of its love. How loving is God? Well, he made a perfect world. People trashed it and ruined it and rebelled against him. Yet he kept loving the world in that when it walked away from him, he had a plan to bring it back to him. That's how much God loves the world. So for the most part, Genesis goes on to tell the story of God setting the stage for redemption. From Adam to Noah to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who is given the name Israel and is the father of many sons and daughters. It's from Jacob the nation truly begins to take shape, yet they also end up in Egypt and end up in bondage. And remember, God is giving the book of Israel to the nation of Israel when they're coming out of slavery, when they're coming out of Egypt. So God's giving them Genesis to explain the, the why that they never knew. Why did God make the world? Why did God make people? Why did God not hit reset when people rebelled against him? But now he's going to spend the last 13 chapters of Genesis explaining how they became slaves and explaining why he allowed them to get in this place to begin with. 
which you'd think it doesn't really matter anymore. They're going to be free, so why bring up the past? And the reason is because their bondage in the way they became slaves actually had a very important lesson to teach them. Even though they were bound for the promised land at this point, uh, when they're reading this and hearing this, with Egypt in their rearview mirror, it would be imperative that they hear this story and hear every gritty detail of it so that they would be prepared for the days when they were full of, uh, that were full of ups and downs, full of more losses than maybe victories, so that they might be inspired by the same hope that kept this one individual alive during the hardest years of his life. It actually set the stage for Israel to be a nation. So Genesis 37 through 50, if you've ever read this story, it's a very long story. But Genesis 37 through 50 tells us essentially why we should never give up and shows us the origin of human resilience, of an undying hope that God offers all of us. And it's almost like from this moment in time that this embedded earnest hope came alive and woke up in the heart of one particular person because the story single-handedly redefines the way any of us face hardships and trials and frustrations. Up until this point in the story, it's safe to say that nobody had tapped into this gift from God. Nobody had utilized it and taken full advantage of it. But it's also true that the story of redemption was very, very, very early on. God had appeared to Abraham, basically explained to him that, hey, I'm going to start a nation with you. I'm going to start from scratch with you, and we're going to build a nation that's going to take my name to the whole world. Abraham was already old at this point, in his 70s. Uh, he and his wife were childless, and they were really nobodies. So uh, what did they have to lose to say yes to this God that they had never really heard of before? Uh, worst thing that happens, they just continue to be nobodies with nothing like it had been for 70 years. So they had nothing to lose. So from there on, Abraham's family is really, really privileged and really, really blessed above everyone else in the land that they're living in. Abraham has Isaac, and Isaac's very blessed. When the rest of the world is struggling with a famine and with all sorts of, of problems, Isaac is, is, is holding on strong. Um, Isaac has a son named Jacob, and Jacob has just this Midas touch and literally can do no wrong even when he appears to be in the wrong. He gets by with pretty much anything that he wants to do and get by with. So along comes the next in line, a boy named Joseph. Joseph appeared to be the next one who was going to live a charmed life and be the, the favored son of God. Joseph, however, was not the only man on the stage. He was sharing that stage with 11 brothers. And if you thought the struggle for blessing between Jacob and Esau was a heat, bit heated, imagine how these 12 were going to sort it all out. And, and it appeared from the very beginning, though, that there wasn't going to be any need to sort anything out because from the moment that Joseph was born, he was the next to youngest. From the moment he was born, he was the apple of his father's eye. And it was a, a foregone conclusion that Joseph is going to be the name you read in history. It's going to be the story of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. It's already been decided. And for years, his older brothers, Reuben, Judah, Levi, Simeon, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, and Issachar, for years, these older brothers, born back to back to back to back, however many backs you need, uh, they all wondered, were they going to be the next in line to carry the blessing? But when Joseph was born, it was obvious he was his father's favorite. And Jacob positioned him as the one who would carry the baton forward. He was going to, uh, he expected God to establish him behind the scenes. And in all accounts, that was what was going to happen. 
Because Joseph had a connection with God that was unlike anything anybody had ever seen before, as it appeared. Now, it's from that perspective that I want you to hear the first few verses of Genesis 37. As we're introduced to Joseph, and we're given a lot of reasons as to why we should expect Joseph to be the main character going forward in all the right ways, in terms of prosperity and blessing and, and all those things. So the story goes that Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. This is the history of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers. The lad was with the sons of Billa and the sons of Zilpha, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report to them to his father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all of his children because he was the son of his old age. Also, he made him a cloak or a tunic of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. So he said to them, please hear this dream which I have dreamed. Now you've all had that younger sibling that even when you tell them that you don't want to hear what they have to say, they just keep talking. So Joseph was naive to their hatred, or maybe he liked it and was just trying to kind of rub it in their face. We don't know. Joseph says, hey, I had this dream, and, and there we were, binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf arose up and stood upright, and indeed, your sheaves stood around and bowed down to my sheaf. <laughs> I wonder what that was about. And he'd been told since he was a kid, you're the chosen one, you're the chosen one, you're going to be the richest and the best and the strongest and the greatest, Joseph. So of course Joseph knows what this dream means. He just expects it at this point. And his brother said, oh, shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him even more for his dreams and his words. And then he dreamed yet another dream and told it to his brothers. They didn't ask him, by the way, but he just couldn't stop telling them. Look, I have dreamed another dream. At this time, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars, there's 11 of you. I wonder what that means. The 11 stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come, down, come to bow down to the earth before you? And I think that his father rebuked him because he just knew that it was just making things worse for his other brothers. And his brothers envied him. But his father kept the matter in mind. So Jacob winked at him. He's like, hey, maybe you shouldn't tell those stories to your brothers. They don't like you. And they don't like you more. And they like you less and less every time you tell these stories. So Joseph is your typical spoiled, pampered, youngest son in a wealthy family. Joseph knows he's the favorite. And he kind of revels in telling everybody about it. He's probably smarter than everyone else because he doesn't have to go out and work. In the, the heat of the sun, he can study and he can read and he's you know, kept his boyish looks and charms because he doesn't have to work that hard and, and get all sweaty and all tired uh, like the others have done since they were probably 10 or 11 years old. He's got more money in the bank even though his dad pays all his bills, so why does he even need money? But he's the privileged youngest son. Uh, he's beyond, uh, beyond his brilliance and affluence. Apparently, he's got this spiritual connection with God that he keeps having these dreams that clearly point to the future. So, of course, he's had time to do nothing but learn the stories passed down from Adam to Noah to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob. And his dad has been telling him, hey, you're the next one. You're the promised son. You're the one that's going to bless the world. So, of course, Joseph head is, Joseph's head is as big as you can imagine it being. 
He was basically told he was the main character in a story, uh, in, in the story of creation. You've met people like him before. They believe their own hype. They believe all the stuff that's told to them by their parents or by the people that love them. And, and you know, they walk around and it's kind of obnoxious to be around them, isn't it? It's kind of annoying to be around people like that. You might not be jealous of them, but you're just kind of tired of them. And maybe you are jealous. His brothers were. Now, here's the thing about people in the Bible, the, Bible that's, the, the people the Bible spotlights throughout all these stories, that hope we, we were talking about uh, being planted down uh, in all of us, that hope that God put in all of us, they didn't really need it. Early on in Genesis, I mean, these people had it so good, and God's hand was on them in a tangible way. Um, other than the early days when Adam and Eve were, were kind of on the ropes, um, nobody really needed hope because God was just hand, you know, hand to mouth giving them everything they needed. But along comes the story of Joseph. And it appears that this is just going to be another one of those fairy tale stories that you'll never relate to. But suddenly, it's going to become like the real life we all know so well. And that's why I think the story of Joseph is one of the most important stories in the Bible in all of history. Because it reveals to us that deep down inside us all is something that can endure the hardest of battles, can press on in the midst of the greatest challenges, can take another step forward even when the pathway is dimly lit. The story of Joseph is going to reveal to you and reveal to us that there is a gift from God in all of us. There is a gift of God, a gift from God in all of you that just needs to be awakened. But, as we'll learn from the story of Joseph, it only comes to life when life takes an unexpected turn or when life turns upside down. And here's what makes Joseph's story so incredible. He begins his journey thinking the gift of God was found in an easy, comfortable, prosperous life. But he eventually realizes that the true and greater gift isn't necessarily found in any of those places. So the story goes that Joseph, who loved playing inspector and loved being superintendent over his brothers, was asked to snoop on them once again, and he was ready to do it. In verse 12. So his brothers went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are your brothers feeding their flock in Shechem? Shechem, come, I will send you to them. And he said to them, Here I am. And then he said, please go and see if the, it is well with your brothers and well with the flocks and bring back a word to me. So he sent him to the valley of Hebron or from the valley of Hebron to, and he went to Shechem. Now a certain man found him and there he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, well, what are you seeking? So he said, I'm seeking my brothers. Please tell me where they are feeding their flocks. And, and the man said, they have departed from here. For I heard them say, let us go to Dauphin. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. So you can imagine Joseph is actually excited to hear that his brothers have turned another day of, of work into a leisure trip, going well off the beaten path, probably trying to get as far away from Joseph's eye as they could. Uh, and if you look at this on a map, on a scale, they were hundreds of miles from where they should be. And Joseph is way out of his league to be going that far from home, apparently on his own, or at least with an entourage that his father sent him with. But it's, it's just that this complex, he has this complex that, of course, I'm going to be taken care of. Of course, I'm going to go and check on my brothers. Of course, I'm going to go and spy on them and give a report to my dad. And dad's going to be proud of me and dad's going to be disappointed with them. That's just how this works. That's what I'm supposed to do with my life. 
Apparently he comes on a chariot or mounted on a mount that they would have recognized him from a distance and then he says to his entourage, hey, let me go take care of this because i got to look like I'm a tough guy and like I'm you know, capable of taking care of myself and even though his dad probably was questionable, questioning that. So his brothers see him coming and they decide it's the last time they're going to watch him appear on the horizon to check on them. Verse 18. Now when they saw him afar off, even before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. And they said to one another, look, this dreamer is coming. So there's a, big back and, there's a bit of a back and forth whether they should or shouldn't do this to him. And they decide that they should. They absolutely should. So down in verse 23, it says, It came to pass when Joseph had come to his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the tunic of many colors that was on him. And they took him and cast him or threw him in a pit. So they jump him and they throw him into an empty well. It was a pit with no water in it. So verse 24 would have been a bad omen in those days. Throughout Genesis, there's this quest for water, access to water. They're in the desert, after all. And they're always digging wells. They're always trying to find ground with reservoirs to sustain the tribes and the nations that were nearby. So this is an ominous statement that Joseph was thrown into a pit that was a dried-up well, which suggests that his fortunes are turning for the worse. And here's the way the world back then, and the way many of us stubborn, pessimistic, negative people will interpret this. If a bad thing happens, then more bad things are probably going to happen. Have you ever thought that process in your head? A bad thing happens, so obviously more bad things are going to happen. That's what our mind does, doesn't it? A bad thing happens, that must mean that more bad things are on the way. And it probably says something bad about God and about me and God and about me in general. So maybe you blame it on God, maybe you blame it on you, maybe you blame it on some disconnect between you and God, whether you deserve it or you earned it or you, you're not at fault at all. There's something in our minds that says, God might be mad at me, God is not who I thought he was, maybe I did something that God knows about and God's going to get me for it. By all accounts, though... Joseph was blindsided by this. He was just having visions of grandeur a few nights before. So there's part of us that wants to think, God could have prevented this. What's Joseph done wrong? Unless there's something we don't know about. Or unless this is a sign that his fortunes are turning. But God could have stopped this from happening, right? I mean, if God can give him a vision of the future, then God can meet him along the way and say, whoa, 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 Joseph, you don't need to go to Dothan. Right? I mean, if God gave him visions of, 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 and dreams, if that was from God, and it clearly was, I mean, God could have prevented this. Absolutely. And the fact that he didn't must be a bad sign or say something bad about Joseph, right? And then I, I love verse 25. And if you ever doubt the Bible's inspired, it, it, you should, verse 25 is, one of the, is, is proof that, I mean, so cruel, uh, they throw their brother, brother down a 10-foot hole, and now they're hungry, so they sit down to eat a meal. You hear that? No, I don't hear that. Our brother is moaning because we just, we just threw him down a pit. He's probably broken some bones, right? I mean, I imagine he broke more than just a couple of bones. He's screaming for help. Maybe he's knocked out, I don't know. But let's sit down and have some lunch. Because we just we just been working really hard. We threw our brother down a pit. Let's have some lunch. So clearly, <laughs> you couldn't make this up. So they sat down for a meal, and then they lifted their eyes up, and they, they see there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing spices and balm and myrrh on their way to carry them down to Egypt. And suddenly, they're hit with a touch of mercy. 
you know, we really shouldn't kill our brother. We should sell him and make some money off of it. Verse 26, Judah says, what profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be, our hand be upon him. For after all, he is a brother. Man, that, that reminds us of some people that we know, right? Man, after all, he is our brother. Let's not kill him, but let's sell him and make some money off of this. So, Joseph is sold to some traders who are headed down to Egypt, the farthest place they could ever imagine away from where they were. His brothers go back home and they tell their dad the bad news. Hey, dad, little, little inspector that you sent out to spy on us, uh, he, uh, um, he got mauled by an animal. And here's his coat of many colors. Oh, look at that. His animal's blood. He, he's, he's dead. We're sorry, Dad. And, and Joseph, Jacob is completely heartbroken. He goes into a state of mourning for, for years. Joseph is being carted down to Egypt in reality, though. And can you imagine? Can you imagine what was going on, going through Joseph's mind at this point? He probably is tied up in the back of a wagon or across a donkey or a camel because you wouldn't take a thousand-mile journey through the desert and have a slave just sitting there like he's part of the entourage. You would have him tied up. So one night he's dreaming of ruling the world, realizing that his, you know, the dream his family had been given by God and, or was going to be given by God. And, and now he's headed to the ends of the earth. I mean, we don't even have a category for this, do we? I mean, this is, this is ten times worse than any bad day we could ever have. And at some point along the way, Joseph had to make a decision. Because here we have all along, Joseph has faith. Joseph has plans. God has plans for Joseph. Joseph has been told since he was a little boy, you're the chosen one. God loves you. God has plans for you. You're going to bear the blessing that's going to change the world. He's been told this from youth. So at some point, Joseph has to make a decision. Do I throw away everything I've been told about God, about faith, about God's plans for my life, or do I somehow, some way, continue to believe, even though God allowed me to be betrayed by my brothers, thrown in a pit, sold into slavery, even though God allowed my brothers <clears throat> to do this to me, even though God could have stopped it from happening, but he didn't. <clears throat> do I throw away my faith? Because I just got thrown away. I just got thrown into a pit. Do I throw away my faith or do I somehow, someway continue to believe? Do I allow my circumstances to override God's promises or do I keep believing? And here's the thing. At some point in all of your lives, you have to answer these same questions. Our situation may be more mild. It may be much more severe. At some point, we will be tempted to entertain these very questions. And what's on the line isn't just our faith. It's our lives altogether. Our faith is what grounds us and guides us. Our faith is what causes us to care about our integrity and our legacies. Our faith is what causes us to consider the ramifications of our actions and our decisions. And this is where is when there is inside of you a gift that will only ever be activated in moments like this. But it's waiting on you to answer these questions or this question. Do I throw away my faith? Or do I somehow, someway continue to believe? Listen to what the book of Romans teaches us about how sometimes the most unwelcomed sequence of life events actually brings us to the most desirable place in life. Listen to how the Apostle Paul teaches us how this can happen in Romans chapter 5. 
Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that, now I don't know about you, but I don't have as much confidence as Paul seemed to have. But hey, if he believed it, then we should believe it. Knowing that, suffering produces endurance. That when we suffer, that it doesn't mean, hey, it's just going to, things are going to be bad. That our trials are meant to give us an enduring, patient heart. And that suffering produces endurance. Endurance builds up our character. And our character, having been hardened and having been strengthened, produces hope. There is inside every one of you this hope that God put there from the beginning. But it takes a twist of events. It takes an unexpected turn. It takes life going in a direction that you would never have planned it to go. For this hope to come to life. Because you, you don't get to hope without going through suffering and enduring and your character being refined and built up. But if you can arrive at this hope, and if you can see this hope awaken, hope does not put us to shame. It does not disappoint. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In that moment, God comes to life in us in a way that we would have otherwise never experienced. The trials and persevering through those trials activates a hope that God puts in our hearts. And it's in these trials and it's, th it's through these circumstances that hope brings something to us greater than material and worldly blessings. The presence of God in our heart. Think about how creation started. Humanity in a garden, God was with them. God was around them. God was walking in their midst and then they walked away from him. And the world turns upside down, but humanity managed to turn a fallen world into a pretty decent place to live. There are a lot of people who don't know the Lord that have made a pretty good living for themselves, right? There's a lot of people who have made this fallen world a pretty okay way to place to live. Now, you know there's something missing, but they don't. Listen, humanity has done a pretty good job at making this world a pretty manageable place, or more than that even. We are professionals at compensating for our disconnect from God with all sorts of worldly powers, possessions, and pleasures. We're good at it. We feed our appetites with fear and our fears with things of this world, and we assume that's going to do the trick. But it doesn't, and it never will. And our fallen nature is stubborn in that it will continue to go to wells long after they're proven dry. So this is why God gets involved in unexpected ways. God, in his efforts to redeem, sometimes removes the cushions we put around us so that he might get to us. Do you see where this is going? He removes the barriers, he removes the cushions so that he might get to us. And it's not that the things that we've put in our lives are bad. It's not that the things that we've relied on and leaned on are bad. They might be good. It's not that they're bad things. But they are not and they never will be God. They're not, and they never will take the place of God. And they never quench the desire in your heart for God. So sometimes it all comes undone so that it will be put back together better than before. Just that you will be put back together better than before. Now we don't know if there was something wrong with Joseph, but it doesn't mean everything was right either. He had these promises that he had around him, but he didn't have something within him that he gets through this experience. 
It appears that along the way from Israel to Egypt, Joseph made a decision that he wasn't going to abandon his faith just because his plans had been altered. Over in Genesis 39, we're told something for the first time in the story that I think was specifically left out of the previous story because it wasn't true then in the way that it is now. Genesis 39, 1 and 2 says, Now Joseph has been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. And verse 2 is one of the most just hard, hard verses to, to understand in a vacuum. But maybe you understand it now that you've seen all the pieces come together. The Lord was with Joseph... And he was a successful man. Now, as successful as you can be as a slave in Potiphar's house. But it means that he was very well spoken of. He was very well trusted. He was successful. He was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. The Lord was with him. Could God have been with him to keep him out of the pit? To keep him out of slavery? Probably. But apparently, God was now with him in a way that he had not previously been. Do you see that? Before God was around him, before he acknowledged God, he paid tribute to God, he visited the altar a few times a week, but now, as a direct result of his struggle, God was with Joseph in a personal, intimate way. He gained an earnest, resilient, boundless hope through the process. It's not a coincidence that the first time we read about God being with Joseph was after he went through all this. A hope that wasn't contained by boundaries or circumstances, but that would go with him wherever and wherever he was and whatever he was facing. Joseph had a hope that filled him with the Spirit of God. Later on in this passage, Pharaoh's wife tries to, uh, Potiphar's wife tries to convince Joseph to have an affair with her. But Joseph says, I cannot sin against God. The God who allowed you to become a slave? Yes, that God. The God who is with me like never before because of all this. Genesis 39 concludes by telling us in verse 19 that Potiphar's wife accuses Joseph of assault, even though it was really the other way around. And Joseph's master, verse 20, took him and put him in prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. The Lord was with Joseph, though. Don't worry. He's in prison, but God's with him. Showed him mercy and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. The keeper of the prison committed Joseph's hand, all the prisoners who were in the prison, whatever they were doing, it was, it, whatever they did there, there, it was his doing. So we have this ironic situation where Joseph is being blessed by God, but in all the places that you would think God would keep him from. But Joseph was unfazed. At age 17, he was thrown into a pit, and a few months later, he was thrown into prison. And for 13 years... For 13 years, he stayed in that prison. Yet somehow, he didn't see this as a demotion. He didn't see this as less than his previous life. Why? God was with him. And he had hope. And you tell me how a man survives 13 years in prison for a, for a crime he didn't commit after being thrown into a pit by his brothers? You tell me how someone survives that. Only... With this earnest, undying, boundless, resilient hope that God puts in us. Would he ever have known God's presence in the same way had it not been for this series of unfortunate events? Probably not. Church, there is in all of us a resilience and a hope just waiting to wake up. 
And it could be that those tough days we have every once in a while, those unexpected disasters that come our way personally, relationally, professionally, it was a process that God allowed to bring in our life. God brought into our life so that his promises and his presence might come to life like never before. This could be a struggle that you've had personally for years. It could be a problem that you've been trying to ignore. It could be a stressful thing that you try to compensate for in so many ways. Maybe the answer to figuring out what to do with all this, maybe the solution or the way that you start, start processing all of this, is you come to God and you say to him, I see that you brought me here for a reason. I don't expect me to be able to convince you to go to God and say this in the hardest moments of your life. I'm just asking you to consider the story of Joseph. Consider how a man or boy who had everything taken away from him unfairly and somehow some way ended up in a dungeon for 13 years and yet he was unfazed and he was closer to God than ever because he had a hope that every one of you can have and that is in you already just waiting to wake up. That thing in you that is stubborn and negative and pessimistic, God can take that and redeem it and bring something better out of it. If we go to God and say, God, I see you have brought me down these paths for a reason. I see you have brought me here for a reason. To fill my heart with hope and with your presence. You know, we often regret things in life that we miss out on. That we could have had, but we didn't get. But don't you think the greatest regret at the end of our days will actually be that we could have lived a life of earnest and resilient hope. And we could have had God's redeeming power and presence in our lives every day. We could have had the courage to press on, but we just didn't go to him and take advantage of it. If you want this hope, you can have it. You've had it all along, but it came, but it can come to life if you see and embrace what God is doing in your life. Joseph saw and Joseph embraced. He endured those 13 years until eventually he was raised up out of prison and found his way somehow into the presence of Pharaoh. When one of Pharaoh's right-hand men ended up in prison and Joseph interpreted his dream and Joseph was recommended to Pharaoh to interpret his own dreams, Pharaoh ended up calling Joseph out of prison and Joseph, like a man on ice, unfazed by this opportunity, doesn't say, Pharaoh, I'm the guy that can fix your problems, but he says, let me tell you about my God who can fix this problem. Pharaoh, impressed by his humility and by the presence of God in his life, makes him an ambassador for his kingdom. And y'all know how the story goes. Israel becomes a, a people of refuge under Egypt, in Egypt. Joseph does not seek revenge. He saves his brothers. And he saves the future promise of God. At the very end of the story, Joseph concludes the story with a verse that you've all heard before, that you've read before. Hopefully you can memorize it today if you haven't ever looked at it. In Genesis 50, verse number 20, and the very last page of Genesis, when Joseph's brothers are asking him, Hey, Joseph, how did you hold together those 13 years? How, how did you not give up? And how did you not pay us back when you got us in your presence a few years ago? When his brothers are wondering, Joseph, how did you make it? Joseph says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it. Not used it, but meant it for good. 
in order that it might bring about what is, this, what is to this day, or as it is to this day, to save many people alive. Joseph confesses that everything that has happened is meant for more than it appears. It's, more, it, it, it's meant for more than it seems. It was meant to bring about a hope in my life. It was meant to bring about God's presence in my life. He doesn't spend things at the end. He clung to this from the very beginning. But here's what, you're, here's what the invitation that God has put in front of all of you today. I don't know what point in the story you're at, the beginning of the story, the middle of the story, the end of the story. At any point in your story, you can choose to have this kind of hope. You can choose to have this kind of hope. Our hearts are waiting to wake up to it and see God move into our lives in a way that Joseph knew so well. So my question to you today is, in the moments that are most frustrating and most challenging, do you choose to turn away from your faith? Do you choose to believe all the negative, all the pessimistic thing, all the things that everyone else says around you or the way it's going to be? Or do you choose to put your faith and your hope in God who promises you he means it for more than it appears? He means it for more than it seems. To bring about a hope in your heart. To bring about his presence in your life in a way that you have never experienced before. Let me pray for you. Lord, it takes, it seems like it takes a lot of faith to be able to believe that what man means for evil and what the enemy means for evil, you mean for good. It seems like a big statement of faith to say, I'm going to trust that God's in control. It seems like a big deal, but Lord, it's really a bigger statement of faith to believe all the other things that we put our hope in. To believe that you aren't in the control. To believe that you aren't working out for our good. To believe that you aren't trying to make things better. To believe that you aren't in the midst of this. It takes a lot more faith to believe all those lies. But I understand, Lord, we, we are also influenced and also overwhelmed and we have so many things in our world that, that lead us away from you. But God, I'm sure there's somebody here today that would just confess to you that they have given up at times. They have chosen to pull back at times. Or maybe there's things that they've went through and came out of that they didn't take full advantage of what you were trying to do in them. And they now realize that you were trying to reveal yourself to them in a very crucial moment of their stories. Lord, I don't know what point of the stories so many are in, but at any point they can come to you and right now they can come to you and say, God, I see what you're doing. I see that you have brought me down this road for a reason. To give me hope and to give me your presence like never before. So Lord, maybe somebody would like to confess today that they have previously given up, but not anymore. Maybe somebody would like to come in, come to call you down in the middle of their story and say, God, I need you to show me how you mean this for more. I'm choosing to put my faith in you because I see that you are in control and I will doubt you no more. Awaken that hope within my heart that I might have confidence that you have a plan and you can be known like never before. Lord, we thank you so much for the evidence you've given us. Remind us even more in this invitation how we can trust in you and how we can put all of our hope in your plan.
In Jesus' name we pray, amen.